0: Well, this morning I want to welcome someone who was maybe one of the first people I really got to know here at Summit Drive. I mean, I got to know lots of people, but these uh, grants... And his wife have been around here and their family for a long time. I got to be youth pastor and young adults pastor to some of his kids, and that was a joy. Now they're all grown up and they're parents themselves, which is pretty wonderful. So, uh, so it's a real joy to, to welcome Grant. Uh, he's a physician here in town and has been a long time. And he's gonna be sharing, as we've been working through this series called Traveling Light. Uh, We've been looking at this invitation from Jesus, who says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And uh, we're going to be looking at some of those. We've been looking at, throughout this summer, some of those burdens. And we've kind of illustrated them with the backpacks here. uh, What it would look like to travel light, what it would look like to be burdened with a lot of things. And so, today I've asked Grant to speak um, from Ephesians chapter 5. And he's going to be talking about, uh, well, really, how idols or those things that compete for first place uh, with God in our lives, um, are what often lead us into addictive or compulsive behaviors. And so he's going to speak both from from the scriptures, but also from his perspective as a physician as well. So, uh, so welcome, Grant, with me, and we open our hearts to what God has had Thank to say you. through you. Thank yeah. You.
1: <clears throat> well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Really great to be here and, uh, yeah, to be diving into this topic. Now, I'm going to try and adjust this up if I can. Maybe that's the wrong. Dave, could you help me get this a little higher? Um, you when you reach a certain age, you've got to get it just right at the right height. I think, the that's, distance. The right I think height. that's probably good, yeah. <laughs> you got it. Uh, so, we live in an age of influencers and imitators. Uh, Stats show that uh, fully 72% of Gen Zers and Millennials follow at least one influencer online, sometimes many influencers. And uh, these are people like Cristiano uh, Rinaldi, uh, Taylor Swift, Justin Bieber. They wear the the best clothes they live in the most desirable places and they go to the most exotic places for vacations and often you can see it all online and hear all about it um they're really kind of the uh greek goddesses and gods of our age and so uh as I thought about this, I thought there's also a great burden, though, to following these people, to to keep up with them, to try and match their style. Um, And here we are looking at Ephesians 5, and Paul is actually asking us to imitate God himself, a much more lofty goal. So I want to read this passage, first of all, and I've uh, chosen to, to read it from the message paraphrase because there is such passion in this delivery and I think it, it catches Paul's intentions uh, and, and uh, excitement. So, Ephesians 5, and I'm going to read 1 through 20. Watch what God does and then you do it. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us but to give us everything of himself. Love like that. Don't allow love to turn into lust, setting off a downhill slide into sexual promiscuity filthy practices, or bullying, greed. Though some tongues love the taste of gospel, those who follow Jesus have better uses for language than that. Don't talk dirty or silly. Rather, uh, that kind of talk doesn't fit your style. Rather, thanksgiving is our dialect. You can be sure that using people or religion or things just for what you can get out of them The usual variations on idolatry will get you nowhere, and certainly nowhere near the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. Don't let yourselves get taken in by religious smooth talk. God gets furious with people who are full of religious sales talk, but really want to have nothing to do with him. Don't even hang around people like that. You groped your way through the murk once, but no longer. You're out in the open now. The bright light of Christ makes you plain. So no more stumbling around. Get on with it. The good, the right, the true. These are the actions appropriate for daylight hours. Find out what will please Christ and then do it. Don't waste your time on useless work, mere busy work. Barren pursuits of darkness. Expose these things for the sham they are. It's a scandal when people waste their lives on things they must do in the darkness where no one will see. Rip the covers off those frauds and see how attractive they look in the light of Christ. Wake up from your sleep, climb out of your coffins. Christ will show you the light. So watch your step, use your head. Make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times. Don't live carelessly, unthinkingly. Make sure you understand what the master wants. Don't drink too much wine. That just cheapens your life. Drink the Spirit of God. Huge drafts of him. (laughs) Sing hymns instead of drinking songs. Sing from your heart to Christ. Sing praises over everything, and excuse, any excuse for a song to God, the Father, in the name of our Master, Jesus Christ. What a great passage, right? I I sort of feel like, well, there's a sermon, I could sit down. (laughs) Uh, You know, when I I talked to a few of my uh, good friends and asked them what their response was to this first uh, uh, verse in Ephesians 5 about imitating God, I, I got some interesting responses. Uh, hmm, wow, imitating God. Uh, I'm gonna need a lot of help. Ah, uh, this this could be very difficult. And will will that really lighten our load? What a responsibility. So as I put a outline together, I thought I should try and address some of these things. Number one, can we actually imitate God? Huh. What? Secondly, what gets in the way of imitating God? And that's where I'm going to talk about some things, the idols and addictions. And thirdly, does imitating God truly unburden us? So again, how can we actually imitate God? What gets in the way of imitating God? And finally, uh, what uh, or what, or does actually imitating God actually lighten our loads? So that's what I want to look at. So number one, what, uh, or how can we actually imitate God? Well, again, I, I love this this uh, paraphrase because it's such simple, direct language. Watch what God does, and then you go do it. Uh, this is this just direct, direct instruction. And yet, here's the key. Imitate God as much-loved children. And then do what he does. And the first sense of it is that if you just hang around God, that you actually are with him on a regular basis, that his love uh, will, will teach you and form your behavior. Um, my wife, Brenda, and I had the great privilege of having our, our five grandkids uh, visit over the Canada Day long weekend. Now, their big people came along with them too. Um, but ah, just watching them, uh, they're, they're all, by the way, three and under. So kind of think about a bit of chaos, kind of like a roller derby in diapers. <laughs> and But the thing I noticed is they're so curious. They're just so watchful of you. And as I watched this uh, VBS uh, things, I just like these kids, what, what a privilege to teach and be around these kids because they're just sponges. And so I observed this again on that weekend, and I observed just some beautiful behavior. You know, they're these spontaneous hugs for each other, the grandkids, uh, and they'll just come up to you and just, just hug you, right? Lovely stuff like that, um, sharing, um, bowing their heads when we pray. But you know, I did notice some other behavior. I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Like you know, sometimes like raising their voice when they didn't get their demands met, uh, spinning the truth here and there. I, I, I don't know where they get this stuff. <laughs> well, my point is though that they are just so in by nature. They want to learn and they want to imitate. And this is the context that that Paul is speaking about. You know, in Ephesians 1.5, we are told that before the foundations of this world were formed, God had you in mind. He settled on you as the focus of his love. He decided to adopt you as his children. He sovereignly chose you, and you can't do anything about his sovereign choice. Nothing you can do can change that. So, plan number one, spend time with God. Be a sponge. (laughs) Read God's word. Read it with the wide eyes of a child who is learning. Sing to him hang out with his other children. As we read this passage a little further, we're given a specific attribute to imitate, namely God's love. We are also given a very clear motivator to follow that example of love. Paul reminds us that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, excuse me a moment. (sighs) Think about it. What if we did this on a regular basis, on a day-to-day basis? We, we just followed that example of love. Even those rather difficult people in our life. Pastor Harry used to call them the irregular people. Any of you have been around a while, you'll remember the irregular people he talked about. So this could be a, you know, a nosy, interfering neighbor, um, maybe a boss who's really mean-spirited, Um, even a relative who's prone to gossip and said some hurtful things. You might be thinking, you might be thinking of some specific people right now and you may be thinking, oh, not them, They, they don't deserve that. They don't deserve that love. Exactly. And neither did I and neither did you deserve the love of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. And so this is an interesting thing that those difficult people, they're not actually the object, first and foremost, of our love. Our love is to be a sacrifice and an offering to God. And that, that, that changes things. And, you know, Jesus said in Luke 7 that he who is forgiven much loves much. He who perceives that he has not been forgiven much loves little. And so some of our sins are a little more internal. They're not so easily seen as others. It might be smugness, pride, selfishness. And so we can think, ah, I would never do that. Yeah. That doesn't make us very loving. Rather, verse 4 recommends thanksgiving be our dialect. Zerwick describes thanksgiving as this important component of Paul's thought. It is a basic attitude of a Christian that forces our attention on God, his grace, his desires, rather than our own desires. When I start to stress and, and feel angry... I often find this, and I'm sure you have as well, just to focus on what I'm thankful for starts to change things almost immediately. And, uh, you know, I just in a, a more concrete way, maybe a simple way, but I've started to try to sign my name on emails more often as Grateful Grant. And, you know, just doing that, it just reminds me, and you almost have to live into it. You said grateful grant. You gotta be grateful. Um, sometimes it's a little awkward, you know, like writing writing an email. Uh, dear Revenue Canada, <laughs> uh, I will send the additional income tax as requested. Grateful grant del show." <laughs> Not as easy. Now, this series is not about adding some extra burdens on your backpack, but I think we could think about how do we treat those people around us. And it's a good measure to ask and ask for some feedback now and then. I do think that this much is true, that loved people love people. And loving people when you're already feeling loved isn't a great burden. So, yes, we can be imitators of God if we are born again and become as little children, bowled over by his love, dependent on him, curious to learn and imitate from our Father, thinking often of the grace that has been shown to us in Christ Jesus. Second point, I wanted to talk about is this thought of what gets in the way of us imitating God. Simple answer is, we do. (laughs) We get in the way. We try to make life work. I try to make life work without God. And basically, Paul moves from examples of self-sacrifice in the first two verses to examples of self-indulgence, idols, idols. Bad habits, addictions, in the following verses. Now, Ephesus was rather a, 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 a worldly city. It was a port city. Um, Brendan and I had the privilege of going there on our honeymoon eons ago when we were married and we went off. And it was, well, obviously, we visited the ruins of Ephesus. It wasn't that long ago that the city was still up. <laughs> but One of the most amazing things about Ephesus was this uh, temple of Artemis. Uh, And Artemis was the uh, Greek goddess of, she was known for her uh, beauty, her vengeance, and her love of the hunt and nighttime. So this, um, this Artemis, people came from all over, all these paths led to Ephesus so that they could visit it. And he may recall that Paul stirred up quite the hornet's nest, and I think this is described in Acts, where um, basically he started preaching the gospel and saying that uh, gods made from human hands are no gods at all. And of course, the sales of these little statuettes of Artemis started to drop uh, radically, and that caused a lot of trouble. So um, here Paul's reminding us, don't don't make idols of things that are not God. Don't worship things that are not God. Uh, don't, idols are, are things that lead us away from God. So Paul sees this destructive behavior in the Ephesians. Um, he, he's talking here as well about sexual talk, of, talk of sexual prowess and coarse jesting. John Stott describes these as the cheapest form of wit. Why take a wonderful, exclusive thing that God created for marriage and take it out into the street? Don't start that descent into treating sex flippantly. It can start a slide into lustful and addictive behavior. I want... uh, Addictions start here, and through small steps, they become need. Uh, There's no one recognized definition of addiction, but most definitions uh, share a common core. Addictions are this uh, compulsive searches for a desired object or state of mind and are generally unresponsive to the inevitable harmful consequences of those compulsive searches. Most definitions also include how addictions change uh, underlying brain patterns. They actually start to rewire our brain. Men, I want to talk to you for just a moment. You could could start with just that lingering look at a, a woman who's not your wife or maybe stumbling on to those images online. It may not seem so bad at first, but Paul instructs us to have nothing to do with these things, to avoid even the hint of impurity and greed. He is concerned about Christians falling back into bad habits and moving away from Christ. He calls them for what they are, idolaters, because they have found other things to replace God. And he knows that we are all susceptible to it. In fact, in Romans 7:19, he says, For I do not do the good I want, but I do the very evil I do not want. In John 8, 34, Jesus reminded us that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So, we know this, this story from the Bible. It tells us that from the fall of Adam, we're all in the same boat. We are all born into sin and rapidly become slaves of sin. And as this uh, as we realize this part of it I, I wanted to say again that some sins are very you know out in the open they're external violence towards others lying, cheating, stealing but other sins can be those sins of the heart pride, selfishness coveting and and Sins like that, uh, yeah, they're not as easily seen. But other sins have great consequences. Uh, intoxicating ourselves can lead to homelessness and destitution. These sins, again, are no worse than other sins, but they have great consequences here on earth. We all live with hurts, but for some, some of those past hurts are, are deeper They've been sinned against much more profoundly, and often they may end up turning to substances in an effort to numb that nagging pain. Substance abuse is often uh, something that people use to deal with shame, those feelings that they're unlovable, and grasp just some brief euphoria, but only to wake up from their stupor and realize all that shame and pain is still there. Substance use disorder is the current medical term for abuse or addiction to alcohol and other substances, other drugs. And we now live in an era where most treatment facilities would often focus on harm reduction, And this biological model for addiction. Which is to say that, uh, yeah, that they're looking at this as a genetic predisposition. And uh, I think that in some ways, that can leave people feeling that they're helpless to their genes. We know in medicine that these things are complicated. That there's something called epigenetics that we can alter even our, our genes and the way our genes are expressed. There's little doubt that there is some biological predisposition, and it's thought in so studies, and this shows how much it varies. That you could, if you had a parent who's an alcoholic, you could be anywhere from two to, some would suggest even nine times as likely uh, to have an addiction yourself. We also live in Uh, A time and in a province where the fentanyl crisis has brought great attention to this, uh, I I think the number is 2,358 deaths this last year due to fatal drug overdoses. The focus in the media is, again, often, and among addiction advocates, is on this unreliable toxic drug supply. And this is a, a terrible problem, and we need to... Uh, address that, but the truth is fentanyl uh, users will often seek out the most powerful, the most dangerous supply. They'll sometimes uh, cast away the the safe supply of drugs they have to go seek that out, sometimes uh, selling that so they can afford the, the fentanyl hit. They are ensnared in a chase for hope that will never deliver the hope they really need. People who use illicit drugs are not worse sinners, as I said, than you and I, but they are very much ensnared in the consequences of their sin. And thank God for the organizations that bring a spiritual component to trying to help these folks. Um, And uh, one of the resources yeah, that, that's up on there. That I came across recently was from Focus on the Family, um, and it just lists so many resources around this. And there's many other great organizations. Edward Welch uh, describes the descent into addiction very well in his book Addictions: A Banquet in the Grave. Um, this is another great book if you really want to do a little deeper dive into this. Um, it is very well written, and from a a biblical perspective. He says, in spite of the evidence, the addict's chosen idols are no longer friendly. Unpleasant consequences are quickly forgotten. Users still believe the drug doesn't have them. They think it's helping, or at least makes them feel normal. They believe the drug has placed their self-image on a firm foundation. Ever heard of Liquid Courage? They believe that they have a deeper sense of reality and truth, yet their idolatry is becoming more apparent. Even they themselves might realize there is a greater cost, but they don't care. They perceive advantages outweigh disadvantages. Their substance abuse has artificially given them the feelings that everything is okay. Again, from Edward uh, Welch, Banquet in the Grave. As I read this description, I could, couldn't help think, but isn't that kind of how sin works in all of us? We don't want to admit the power of sin. We, we, we don't want to admit the power of the idols in our life. So we end up giving them progressively more and more power over us, even as we might be moving towards addictions. Addictions. The idols we worship can be invisible and seemingly innocuous. They are generally something, again, that we are trying to address a legitimate need, but in a very illegitimate way. Tim Keller used to point out that we think of idols as always are bad things, but almost never is that the case. The greater the good, the more likely we can expect that They can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes, the more enticing they are. He also liked to point out that our hearts and minds are idol factories. It's interesting here, too, in terms of these idols. There's there's this biological connection. You see that hormones like serotonin and dopamine, even endorphins, are often released when we pursue certain behaviors. It may be different for all of us. It could be excessive exercise. It could be excessive shopping. Having to be out in nature all the time. Success in the workplace. I don't know. It could be many things. It's the problem becomes when we take good things that God has designed for us and we make them into ultimate things. And, sure, it can be more destructive things like fentanyl highs, pornography, extramarital affairs. Even in these cases, there's a certain connection to something God designed for good that is distorted into something that holds too much importance. Our body naturally makes endorphins that resemble fentanyl, Have you ever heard of runner's high? Sex hormones release all sorts of hormones or or sex hormones give us this sense of euphoria that's meant to bond us to our spouse. But when we distort these pathways in an an attempt to give us what God can only give us, it's when we become idol chasers. And we become increasingly desperate people. So, Let me wrap up with this third point. Does imitating God actually lighten our load? Yes. Yes. Yes, it does. Some would suggest that trying to keep up with God's standards is certainly a great burden, and Jesus railed at the Pharisees who were trying to load on extra laws and requirements for the people just to make them feel more inferior, more dependent on them. Now, Jesus described quite a list of behaviors in the Beatitudes, but not as a straitjacket, as something we had to always live into before we were accepted. But rather, he said, this is what the kingdom looks like. This is what the kingdom of God looks like when you feel loved and you're able to start really loving other people. That was Jesus' plan for us. We love because he first loved us, First John 4:19. He told us that whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for his sake will find it. And of course, the verse that is a key verse for this summer series in, in Romans or sorry, in Matthew 11, Jesus knew that we needed him. And so he has promised to teach us these unforced rhythms of grace, promised to not lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on us, to help us live light and free. Hmm. You want to live that way? I want to live that way. And we're reminded in First 1 Corinthians 10.13 that there's no temptation that will come across that isn't common to everyone, and that if we are tempted... He will find and provide a way of escape so that we can endure it. There is hope for these things. I, I, I like the way Martin Luther and Augustine before him described sin as this incurvatus insay, which basically, the curve means my life turned in on itself. Hmm. It's sort of like your life for me. That's what it's about. Instead of, my life for you. Sin loathes boundaries. It's about me. You might recognize an idol when someone tells you, "Mm, I think you're getting a little excessive with that. And you get really angry inside. They're challenging something you hold maybe a little too dearly. Again, Welch is helpful here. He asks uh, or suggests some questions. We can ask ourselves. Maybe ask somebody who's heading down this path. Do you remember that sin deceives us so you cannot trust your own thinking sometimes? Do you know that God is good and his gifts are intended to bless? Do you realize, especially since Scripture talks often of self-control, that it is possible to get it? Do you understand that God actually wants to give it to us? And finally, do you remember the tragedy that has been associated with your sin? We all probably, as as I say that, you can think of things in the past where you've sinned against others. And it's had ah, significant consequences. But I, I love what Ricky when he talked about the the fellow that that really had the profound influence on him about 10 years ago, as I recall, and he still remembers it because he took responsibility for sin, for a, a bad judgment. He didn't grovel in the dirt about it, but he said, yeah, I did that. I want to do better. Jesus has taught me to do better. So perhaps you are thinking that these questions are, are ones that you need to bring up with somebody who's on that path towards addictions. Always remember first that there may be some legitimate hurt that you're, they're trying to address with illegitimate means. Perhaps you yourself maybe need to seek some counseling, some medical attention. Maybe you need to talk to some of the pastoral staff about some of these issues. Maybe you are on the precipice of getting back into an an addiction to pornography, starting an affair, I don't know. But do business with God. (laughs) Deal with these things. Realizing that that our joy, our, our need and desire for joy and connection, they're not bad things. But don't let yourself be Smooth talk. Don't smooth talk yourself. (laughs) I I, I like what C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea we are far too easily pleased. The only fatal error, says John Eldridge, is to pretend that we have found the life we prize, to make the mistake of mistaking the waterhole for the sea, to settle for the same old thing. Christopher Fry called such a life the sleep of prisoners. And the most tragic day of all is when we prefer slavery to freedom, to prefer death to life. We must not follow on that path. We must not stay in sleep. The time has come for us to wake, to arise from our slumber. Maybe you've been thinking as I'm saying these things, ah, yep, I've been asleep at the wheel flirting with disaster. And that's what sin does. It deceives us. It's got a heavy, costly, clinging yoke around us. It com- becomes so familiar, though, we start to believe it's the only way we can make life work. Hmm. It is a lie from the pit. It could cost us everything if we did not turn and follow Christ. So Paul wants to warn us not to drift towards darkness, the idols and sin that destroy. Wake up from your sleep. Cr- climb out of your coffins. Christ will show you the light. He tells us, don't get drunk and dull your mind. Rather, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Huh, that will only increase your desire to imitate your Heavenly Father. Sing your heart out to God. Worship your King. That's what you were designed for. And you will be buoyed up by grace. You just need to rise to the battle. Don't pretend that you're not in a battle. You're in a battle. Ephesians 6, the next chapter, is all about putting on the full armor of God so we can engage in that battle. And it can be a joyful battle. Yes? Amen? Yeah. Sin says, I want, I need, I need more and more. Sin says, I must make a banquet in this grave. But it'll never be enough. Oh, Lord, I confess. We confess, Lord, that we have looked for life in this world for banquets that cannot feed our soul. We have known the sleep of prisoners, the deadly weight of sin. Oh, wake in us, Lord. The love of Jesus says, my life for you. Jesus lived a life that we could not live and die a death that we deserve so that we could be redeemed from our sin, that it, so it could be cast in the deepest part of the ocean, hmm. so that we could be called the children of God, so that we could say, with Jesus, my life for you. Loved people, love people. Forgiven people, forgive people. People made alive in Christ bring life to others. If you need to do some business with God this morning, if you um, maybe are hearing this gospel news of needing Jesus to turn your life around, to deal with the sin in your life for the first time, talk to somebody. Come up here, pray, there'll be people Um, Do it. Do it today. Uh, Join this joyous battle of dealing with things, of, of admitting where we really are and dealing with it. God bless you this morning. You are loved.